This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. For wholesale pricing and nationwide shipping, don't forget our pals at WCScreens.com, the gold standard of the screen printing and embroidery industry. You know the name. And on with the show. Today on Onward to Victory, we are going to be talking about a pair of friends and teammates in early elite Irish offensive tackles, Ralph Dimmick and George Philbrook. And if you're kind of shrugging your shoulders saying, who? No, that's okay. Not only were the pair an early case study during the infancy of NCAA eligibility rules, one would actually suffer a sudden and tragic death, essentially becoming a heartbreaking example of the dangers of football while the other would eventually become an Olympian, going toe-to-toe with the great Jim Thorpe. Did I grab your attention? Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and thank you for joining me here today. As Father William Corby and the famed Irish Brigade used to cry as they entered battle, Fagabala, or clear the way. Clear the way, friends. I have a great story for you today, so pull up a locker room stool, and let's have some fun, shall we? But before we jump in, please, please make sure you have subscribed to the show. That way you can be alerted to all the new episodes as they are released. If you are holding an iPhone in your hand right now, visit that purple podcast icon and rate the show and leave a review if you're feeling kind of nice. I'd greatly appreciate it. Also, please bookmark onwardtovictory.blog. We are kicking up activity on the show's website with my co-contributor Matt Gehring helping break down the current edition of The Irish, which I will pitch in for too, as well as some of what I think are fascinating bits of program in school history as well. So remember, onward to victory.blog. I personally will be heading up boots on the ground, so to speak, up for the Marshall game, so I'll be sure to share my insight with that experience as well. But this initiative is sponsored wholly by our friends at wcscreens.com. So speaking of sponsors, let me throw out some thank yous to our consensus All-Americans. Those kindly folks who have donated to the show to keep the train on the track, so to speak, and they include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and a new member to the muster roll, and that would be Mr. Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. I am eternally grateful for each and every one of you, and just know that if you would like to get your name called out as a consensus All-American yourself, please feel free to visit the virtual tip jars at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for ongoing monthly support. Just know that every red cent is so greatly appreciated. You know, after reading Chet Grant's Before Rockney at Notre Dame a few years ago, it became clear to me 
that many of these guys who played well before Rockne arrived at Notre Dame have almost been categorically forgotten as the hands of time have wound, the pages of history have turned, whatever cliche you'd like to use. This show has actually dedicated quite a bit of time to help rectify this, I think. And if you have your doubts about this, please feel free to go through the show's catalog or drop me a line at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com and I would be happy to make some episode recommendations for you if you need a jump start. But this has been an era of program history I strongly feel needs to be revisited often for fear parts of it may be almost completely overlooked. So bear with me for a minute or two here as I cover just how this episode came to be. Not sure about a lot of you, but I take notes on my phone quite frequently. Probably too frequently, actually. I have dozens and dozens of them, and sometimes these notes are just a word or two, and in retrospect, they make almost no sense. So as I was cleaning out the notes on my phone a couple weeks back, I stumbled on one from March 15th, 2020. This is, of course, hugely interesting because this is the very day that the United States began effectively shutting down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And honestly, I don't remember writing this particular note, but it was called Episode Ideas. It had five of them, including, uh, the first one said, The Collision of Babe Ruth and Knut Rockne in 1927. So this actually later became Episode 19, just five days later at that. And I talked about those iconic photographs of Rock and the Babe and how those kind of came to be. The next one just said, Review of Jeff's Book. This was alluding to Jeff Harrell's Rockney of Ages. This later became episode 25, the one-year anniversary special in June of 2020, where I talked about just that, Jeff's book. The third was the uh, origin and story of the Notre Dame Victory March. This idea became episode 31 in September of 2020. The fourth just simply said Wayne Edmonds. He later became the subject of episode 39, which hit the wire almost a year later in February of 2021. Wayne was the first black football player to earn a monogram at Notre Dame, and he was the first installment of a series I call Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish. So the first four, I'm four for four, but there was a fifth one. And in my notepad, it just simply said, Ralph and George. Fortunately, I knew exactly what I was writing just then and there. So, after a ton of research, this is coming to fruition now two and a half years later. I give you the tragedy and the triumph, the stories of Ralph Dimmick and George Philbrook, right after this. Ralph Chester Dimmick. He was born in Hubbard, Oregon on April 14th, 1884, and he appears to be the youngest of eight children in the family. According to a 1911 article, his family was actually a pioneering family that had taken the Oregon Trail to get there. Yeah, you remember that game, don't you? But his father, John Buell Dimmick, served in the American Civil War with the 1st Oregon Infantry Regiment, where he was actually commissioned a first lieutenant. And this was actually after he served three years in the 1st Oregon Cavalry. So, for those Civil War buffs and inquiring minds, the letters between John and his wife Almira, so Ralph's mom and dad, 
are actually preserved to this day by the Oregon Historical Society. Ralph's older brother Grant became a judge and just narrowly missed being elected governor of Oregon in 1914. I thought that was interesting, but nonetheless, I digress. George Warren Philbrook was born about six months later, on October 10th, 1884, also on the West Coast, in Sierraville, California. So for you geography folks, it's just a stone's throw from the Nevada border in Northern California. It's actually resting less than an hour drive in the present day anyway from Reno, Nevada. But at some point it would appear as though the Philbrook family moved north to Oregon. And as best I can tell, the men actually would have met each other as members of the Pacific University football team. Pacific University was located in uh, Forest Grove, Oregon, by the way, and this would have been during the 1904 season. So hang with me all. The timeline will actually be a crux to the story. So these guys are growing into quite large men, by the way. Philbrook is well on his way to actually growing to be about six foot four-ish, if you will, and 225 pounds. But by the way, Notre Dame historian Chet Grant actually put him at about 6'6". Looking at photographs, I don't quite think he was that big, but damn, he, he was certainly healthy. While Dimmick isn't quite that large, he'll still be well over 6 foot and right about 200 pounds at his peak. While these men excel on the football field, their friendship and athletic dominance really blooms as members of Pacific's track team. Pacific University's mascot is the Boxers, by the way, which I thought was pretty cool. But George and Ralph are strong as oxen, and they particularly thrive in the field events for Pacific. In fact, during the 1905 Portland Fair, so this is after both of their first years at Pacific, the organizers of the fair invited track athletes from all up and down the coast, including those from the University of Oregon, Stanford, USC, UCLA, and the University of Idaho as well. But included on the muster roll are a couple athletes from tiny Pacific University who also garnered invites. You guessed it. George Philbrook, who was competing in the high jump, 16-pound hammer throw, discus, and the 120-yard hurdles, and Ralph Dimmick, who was slated to compete in the hammer throw also. This was all according to a June 16, 1905 issue of the Tacoma News Tribune, by the way. But the duo actually transferred out of Pacific University in 1905, and they moved on to Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. So naturally, both men go out for the Whitman team, football team, in 1905. Philbrook, Dimmick, and another teammate named Frank Spagel had all transferred from Pacific to Whitman together. And the papers would often refer to them as the PU Bunch, Pacific University Bunch. The Evening Statesman also referred to Philbrook as the Oregon Giant. For Whitman's 1905 season, Philbrook played right guard and Dimmick played right tackle. But there was already some controversy brewing. Apparently there were several articles written which attacked the PU Bunch's decision to leave, which included they only went to Whitman for athletics or they were compensated to go to Whitman, etc., so the boys actually co-wrote their version of a tell-all to explain their side, called Students Give Reasons. 
which included while they were visiting Whitman, competing against Whitman as members of Pacific's debate team, they saw the nice new dormitory, the fact that the campus was heavily interested in student affairs, extracurriculars, and athletics. They cited a shrinking crowd at the Pacific football games as another example, but they wanted to set the record straight, that they were not paid to switch schools. And Philbrook, Dimmick, and Spagel's names all appeared at the bottom of the article as co-authors. As you may expect, Philbrook and Dimmick once again burned up the track and field circuit together in the spring of 1906. And for the 1907 track season, the following season, Philbrook was chosen as captain. During both the 1906 and 1907 football seasons for Whitman, Philbrook and Dimmick served as tackles. And not for nothing, Dimmick was the team captain during the 1907 season. So there you go. 1904 was spent at Pacific, 1905, 1906, and 1907 at Whitman College. During the 1907 spring track season, Philbrook was captain. During the 1907 football season, Dimmick was captain. Four seasons down. Time to call it a collegiate career, right? Well, not exactly. Get a load of this. It was announced in the fall of 1908 that Philbrook and Dimmick could no longer compete on the football team, citing the new four-year role that the conference had adopted. Otherwise, they had every intention of playing their fifth season and their fourth for Whitman that fall. And you also have to understand, this really wasn't them trying to game the system. There was no system, after all. Many college football players during that time played more than four years. And looking through it with the lens of their time, it was commonplace. I mean, in reading the newspapers, it's clear that Whitman kind of felt like the conference was singling them out somewhat unfairly for their two excellent football players, Endemic and Philbrook. But lo and behold, while Philbrook kind of waited around and hoped that the rule would be overturned or tweaked to allow him to play that fall, Dimmick had already gotten out of town and landed in, you guessed it, South Bend, Indiana. So by late September 1908, Ralph had changed his major to law, which was reputedly not offered at Whitman, and he was already suiting up for Notre Dame's football team under the direction of head coach Victor Place. And once it became clear that the Pacific Coast Conference, kind of your precursor to the Pac-12, if you will, was not going to budge on the four-year rule, George switched his major to medicine, which also wasn't offered at Whitman, and followed his pal Ralph Dimmick to Notre Dame too. And he left on October 17, 1908. So they both finished out the 1908 season, their fifth football season together at that, with Notre Dame, who was their third school, and they finished 8-1 on the season. Now, Notre Dame would have absolutely represented a very firm rung up the ladder in both academics and athletics from Whitman. And that's no knock against Whitman. In the present day, it is a nationally recognized liberal arts college and an academically rigorous one as well. But however, back in the day when Dimmick and Philbrook were attending, it was much more of a regional school and the athletics were kind of junior college level. So they would have leapt at an opportunity to play at the University of Notre Dame, which was slowly becoming a national brand, both in academics and athletics. So in 1909, the Notre Dame team, which was now under the direction of former Michigan man Frank Shorty Longman, 
completed perhaps one of the most improbable seasons in school history. The team went 7-0-1 and and finally defeated the University of Michigan in an 11-3 game in Ann Arbor. It was actually around this time that the team began to be called the Fighting Irish in the newspapers. So shameless plug to go back and listen to episode 47 about this particular game. But make no mistake, friends, this was a really, really big deal when Notre Dame finally defeated Michigan. For the better part of three decades, they had been deemed kind of the little brother in this rivalry, and it wasn't even close. So the teams had been long rivals, as I mentioned. Notre Dame's first games as a football program were against Michigan back in 1887, and their contests were usually just good old-fashioned slobber knockers, if you will. But it has also been reputed that Philbrook was roommates with a young Knut Rockney in 1909. And I'm not saying this is wholly incorrect, but you know Rock didn't get to Notre Dame until 1910, so I'm not sure of the veracity of this claim. But they were in the program together in 1910 and 1911, so it is very possible that this was true. But anyway, it's really difficult to say just how important these two guys were to this Notre Dame team. They were great football players and fantastic athletes. And as football fans, we can all agree how great it is to have two large, dominant tackles to bookend your lines. The school paper once noted how Dimmick, quote, charges like a demon. Oh, in the year that Notre Dame beat Michigan, they were also 25 years old. But <laughs> to this point, Notre Dame was a program that kind of habitually lacked physical size. They were always kind of a small and scrappy bunch. But having Dimmick and Philbrook up front gave them so much more juice, especially for Philbrook, who probably outweighed some of his competitors who lined up across from him by about 40 pounds. But Michigan head coach Fielding Yost was furious about losing to Notre Dame. And this anger grew and seethed when Coach Longman, who again was the coach of the Irish, moved back home to Ann Arbor during the offseason and he had a little bulldog named Mike, and he actually had Mike outfitted with a little jacket that said 11-3 to 3 on the side. So he was really rubbing it in, and Coach Longman was known to walk Mike up and down the streets of Ann Arbor every single day. So there was that. So, And also the fact that Michigan otherwise, other than the defeat against Notre Dame, had a perfect season, which included defeating defending national champion Penn in Philadelphia and conference champion Minnesota in Minneapolis. So losing to the Irish and to one of his former players kind of rankled him something fierce. So per the Western Conference eligibility rules, the Western Conference was later to be known as the Big Ten, Yost did not play any freshmen, and all of his players had not yet exhausted more than three years of eligibility. So as far as the conference was concerned, Yost was on the up and up. But it was pretty obvious to Michigan that Notre Dame did not adhere to such rules. Though, to be fair, the Western Conference did not permit Notre Dame to enter, probably owing to a perceived anti-Catholic bias. So here we go. 1910, Ralph Dimmick is actually named captain of the team. So this is Dimmick and Philbrook's third season in South Bend for Notre Dame. Yost begrudgingly puts Notre Dame on the schedule once again, 
but he soon finds out that Philbrook and Dimmick are once again on the team and that these guys are now 26 years old. So he does some digging, no small part because it was Dimmick and Philbrook that really made a huge difference in the Notre Dame-Michigan game the season before, and he finds out about that year at Pacific, those three years at Whitman, and now three more years at Notre Dame. And Yost cries foul, and I mean big time, that Notre Dame is using ineligible athletes, and the Michigan-Notre Dame game is canceled four days before it is scheduled to play in protest. Notre Dame claims that Dimmick and Philbrook have only played three years at Notre Dame, and thus should be just fine to play. After all, Whitman was kind of considered junior college-level athletics. So the schools actually trade barbs in the press for the next week, and it is a front-page story. And frankly, it's pretty ugly, folks. And be mindful, there really isn't any NCAA to act as a governing or mediating body in this case, so conferences kind of did their own things and schools ultimately made most of their scheduling decisions. And as far as PR is concerned, well, it was kind of on the schools. So why do public relations even matter? Well, again, in today's day and age, the NCAA has a very robust public relations department. But back then, the schools just kind of wailed on each other in the press, and that's exactly what happened in this case. So Michigan is kind of within their power and prerogative to actually cancel the game. But this was from the Michigan Daily, which served as the university's student newspaper. This is per John Crick. Quote, Notre Dame and Michigan have played their last game together, and for this we are truly grateful. A local paper bemoans the loss of the hotly contested Notre Dame games. But Michigan need not worry. When the field of fair and square colleges, capable of putting up a good fight against Michigan, runs below the number necessary to fill our schedule... We'll be ready to vote for the cessation of athletic competition, end quote. Well, the Notre Dame school newspaper actually clapped back, writing, quote, We are right. We are sure of that. The ruling which may possibly deprive us of two athletes will be a ruling on a technicality, and no sane man will consider that a fault. We can win a football game or a track meet, but in the matter of post-factum technicalities which is essentially griping after the fact, were outclassed, end quote. So Michigan refused to schedule Notre Dame in football for the next 33 years. So I would say they were pretty sore over the situation. It's just wild. So if not anything else, think about how much our two subjects really stoked the fires of this longtime rivalry. But the 1910 Notre Dame team went 4-1-1. Again, this was the 1910 team that Ralph Dimmick was the captain of. So the next spring, 1911, the same thing kind of happens once again to Phil Brook and to Dimmick. And I just would like to say everything that I've read just says that these two guys are the absolute nicest guys that you may have ever met. However, their biggest crime was, I guess, skirting the thinly veiled or possibly even wholly obscured eligibility rules. Well, also just being fantastic athletes who were absolute difference makers for Notre Dame, whom people just didn't really care for to begin with at this time because of a strong anti-Catholic bias, which actually grew even stronger in the coming decade or so. But anyways, 
They were in a track meet in the 1911 season, and again, the same thing happened. Their points scored by Phil Brook and Dimmick were vacated due to their reputed ineligibility. I would say that Phil Brook is probably one of the very best track athletes of the first half of the 20th century. Has to be. And I say reputed ineligibility because I hate to beat the dead horse, but there really weren't any set standards. While the NCAA did technically exist, it wouldn't really have strong teeth or sharp teeth for another couple decades. So in 1911, Dimmick actually graduates and he moves back to Oregon to pursue his career in law. And here's what I'll say about this quickly, because I think a lot of folks might listen to this and look at this entire situation, all this team jumping, so to speak, and suppose that this is the case of two jocks who just want to keep playing ball. In the case of Dimmick, or Dim, as his buddies called him at Notre Dame, he was one of the best students on the team. According to his teammate Pete Vaughn, he always carried two suitcases on road trips, one for his personal effects and the other full of his textbooks. He took his scholastics very seriously, and if you go back into the school newspaper archives, he wrote some very profoundly thoughtful articles regarding law. So during that same spring, 1911, Phil Brooks served as captain of the track team. And despite the fact that Dimmick had moved on, Philbrook went back out for the football team that fall, 1911. So incredibly, it was his eighth college football season. If you're to count him up again, one for Pacific, three for Whitman, and now his fourth for Notre Dame. Though it would be his first season competing without his pal, Ralph Dimmick. So while Philbrook was finishing his athletic career at Notre Dame, for Dimmick, tragedy sadly lurked. A bit of a warning here as the subject matter is rather upsetting. So he returned home to Oregon and he passed the state bar and he began practicing law in September 1911. According to the Notre Dame school paper, he was also named the head coach of Columbia University which was located in Portland, Oregon, so not like the Ivy League at Columbia University, but again, the smaller one out in Oregon. He was actually named head football coach. But in mid-October 1911, so at the same time his buddy George Philbrook is competing in South Bend for the Notre Dame football team for one final season, perhaps as a gesture of goodwill to the first school he had attended, Ralph agreed to participate in the annual alumni game between the Pacific Varsity team and, you guessed it, their alums. So during the game, according to the October 23rd, 1911 issue of the Oregonian, quote, he was carrying the ball and was tackled hard, falling at the bottom of a pile of players. The ball under his arm caused a concussion and its imprint was found on his flesh, end quote. As you might imagine, his ribs were broken, and it has been written that his lung was punctured also as a result. So he was later rushed to a Portland hospital with pneumonia. But sadly, while he was laying in his hospital bed, unattended by a nurse or doctor, Dimmick, who had been noticeably delirious for multiple days as a result of his injury, which obviously caused an illness and perhaps an infection, he walked to his second-floor fire escape and threw himself 
out the window to his death. He was just 27 years old and only a few months removed from his time spent in South Bend. At the time, similar to those even today, there was a debate raging about player safety and the game of football. It is of note that most of the players at the time did not wear helmets, and Dimmick certainly did not wear a helmet also. But in all, 17 people died from injuries playing football in 1911. This was according to a December 3rd, 1911 issue of the Philadelphia Inquirer. They actually did note, though, that the deaths suffered as a result of football in 1911 were the least in a single year since 1908, but they did note that another 500-plus were seriously injured playing football. Dimmick's sad end was actually recalled in the article that called for either a safer sport or an abolished sport. We don't know how Philbrook mourned the death of his longtime friend and teammate, but we do know that tributes flowed from every corner of the Notre Dame campus. And I was able to find where the students of Notre Dame began collecting money to place a bronze marker near Ralph's grave, which actually did come to fruition in 1913 to celebrate and commemorate the second anniversary of his untimely passing. And if you were to visit Ralph's final resting place in Oregon today, that marker is still there. And it reads the following, quote, In memory of Ralph Dimmick, an athlete in the classroom, a scholar on the field, and everywhere was a man. Erected by the students of Notre Dame in tribute to a memory they hope to perpetuate and wish to share, end quote. So as for George Philbrook, he certainly gained quite a bit of fame post-Notre Dame. After college, he signed on with the Cleveland Athletic Club, and he made a successful run for the 1912 Olympics held in Stockholm, Sweden. He and another American presented the United States with their best chance at decathlon glory. And that was, of course, Jim Thorpe. But just in case we have some who are unaware, and I actually had to reacclimate myself with this, the decathlon is 10 events and includes, at least in 1912, the following. The 100-meter dash, the long jump, the shot put, high jump, 400-meter dash, discus, 110-meter hurdles, pole vault, javelin throw, and the 1,500-meter run. So uh, <laughs> you got to be a pretty special specimen to do this, and there were 29 athletes in the crowded field, and the third and fourth events of the decathlon were the shot put and high jump, which were, of course, specialties of Philbrook. So after four events, George was actually fourth on the leaderboard. The sixth event was the discus, where the powerful Philbrook was a dead ringer. His 41.5 meter throw beat the second place finisher, Joseph Schaufer of Austria by over four meters. So for those keeping score at home, after six events, Philbrook had catapulted himself to second place, trailing only perhaps the best athlete of the first half of the 20th century. That's Jim Thorpe. And after nine events, Philbrook stood in fifth place. 
Unfortunately, he did falter in the 10th and final event, which was the 1500 meter dash, and he took a DNF, which is did not finish, which knocked him down to 10th overall in total points. Jim Thorpe finished and received a gold medal in the event, which was quickly stripped away the following year due to concerns over his amateur status, and it actually remained that way until it was just reinstated in July of 2022, which was actually just two months ago as of this recording. So talk about a timely episode. But seriously, what a path for our man George Philbrook, always a much more talented track athlete, Not to say he was a slouch in football, but track was clearly his game, and he almost parlayed that into a medal in one of the most difficult events in the entire Olympics. But he stayed heavily involved in athletics. He actually coached the Whittier College football team in 1927 and 1928, and the Nevada Wolfpack from 1929 to 1931. He also served as the University of Portland's athletic director in 1937. But it was during his tenure in, at Nevada where his team became the first to take a, quote, lengthy plane ride to a football game. In 1929, the program jumped on a couple small planes and headed to USC, where the, quote, airsick wolf pack were beaten 66 to 0. But George died on March 25th, 1964 at his home in Vancouver, Washington at age 79. But as we consider this era, the, as Chet Grant puts it, before Rockne at Notre Dame, we have to remember the indelible impact of these two athletes, Ralph Dimmick and George Philbrook. Though both prolific during their time in the collegiate athletic ranks. Don't forget the tragedy of one man's life who was unfortunately snuffed out decades far too early, and the other, his pal, who was able to realize a triumph on one of the biggest stages an athlete can. And I'll be right back with show wrap. I appreciate you tuning in here for this story not oft told in the annals of Notre Dame football history. But not oft told is kind of the specialty around here. But yes, glad that you have tuned in. I really hope you enjoyed that. Again, two guys that you just, you know, kind of get lost in the shuffle, if you will. And glad to kind of help illuminate their legacies just a little bit. Even though part of it is kind of interesting, you know, kind of helps spur the pause in the Michigan-Notre Dame rivalry. And now that wasn't the only factor. There was actually quite a few factors that uh, made that rivalry go on hiatus for 33 years. But those two guys played a pretty big role in it. And really, again, goes back to the fact they were just really good football players. And uh, yeah, not the kind of football players Fielding Yost liked to go against from the uh, University of Notre Dame. So thank you again for tuning in, folks. I am greatly, greatly appreciative of it. Just a few reminders here. If you have any questions for the show, if you want to drop the show a line, please feel free to send an email to onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com or head over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onward to victory and you can send the show a message that way uh happy to read any any messages or emails that the show receives 
I'd like to once again thank the Consensus All-Americans for their support. You know who you are, but here you go. We have Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio. We have Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and finally, Andy Nickel of South Bend. Thank you all again for the support. Thank you to WCScreens.com, the 2022 banner sponsor. And thank you to Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockne, serves as the show's theme song. So thank you again for that. And again, just thank you to all of you. This past month was the biggest in show history in terms of episode downloads and listens. And man, that is just awesome. Three plus years into this thing, and we can still go out and you know, set records. It's, it's really, it was quite something. And so, hey, if you haven't already, go back into the catalog and listen to some older episodes. A lot of the episodes are going to be good forever because they're just stories about Notre Dame football that are going to, I mean, I think that a lot of them are going to age really well. But I guess that's my way of saying none of the episodes are dated or nearly none of the episodes are dated. Sure, there'll be a season preview or a season recap, which of course is a little bit better to listen to in the moment. But most of the episodes, again, you can turn them on at, at any point. So, all right, I had better wrap up. Hey, this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Irish.